It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. All right, all right, all right. Pretty big news day here. A lot of stuff to get through. Got a big stack, so we should just dive right in. Letitia James, she is New York's Attorney General. You may recall that name from the time that she was investigating Andrew Cuomo. And it was her investigation of sexual harassment allegations by the former governor that led to Cuomo to quit, which a lot of people thought he would not do. Well, guess what? She's about to run for governor, at least according to six Democratic leaders talking anonymously to The New York Times as she sounds out her support. Uh, She, of course, would be challenging the woman who became governor. Kathy Hochul was lieutenant governor upon Cuomo's resignation. Uh, Now, look, she's entitled to run. There's no reason that Hochul should just be handed the nomination just because she happened to be not just the number two, but a very low profile number two uh, who hails from the western part of New York State. But there is something that just seems a, a tad... I don't want to use the word inappropriate. Let's see, what word could I use? Um, I don't want Let's just see. There's something that just appears to me to be a little unseemly about the state official who investigated the governor and running for the governor's job. And that may explain why once she presented her findings, she just shut up because she didn't want to be accused of being overly partisan and then she's running for the job. And we'll see how she does. Obviously, she would be um, somebody who might be able to garner support in the black community uh, compared to Governor Hochul. We shall see. Uh, This one is so sickening. It's so gross. It's so revolting that I really thought about, all right, I'm not even going to devote any time on the podcast to this. Then I saw it was on Drudge, and I said, all right, you know, it just goes to show you how desperate some people are for attention. There's an Instagram model by the name of Jane Rivera. She's getting roundly denounced, barbecued, tarred and feathered, ridiculed online, as well she should be, because her father died. And I'm really sorry to hear that her father died. I never heard of this woman before, but she's a so-called influencer. So what did she do? She posted some photos of herself next to her dead father's casket and said, oh, let's put this online. This will get me some attention. I mean... It takes a lot to shock these days, but this is truly revolting. And then I read now she's deleted her account. She should. She should never show her face again on Instagram. That is just the most ghoulish thing I could possibly imagine. And let's uh, not spend any more time talking about it. The Wall Street Journal getting some flack this morning for publishing a letter to the editor. Now, why would a letter to the editor be a big deal? Maybe if the letter is written by Donald J. Trump, it would help you to understand Now, Trump uh, sent out a long statement to reporters, um, I believe yesterday, might have been late the day before. Uh, It it looked like it had been written by somebody else, but it was just sort of a, you know, these are all the reasons why we think the election is stolen and so forth. You know, just rehearsing the same arguments, unproven claims, um, and some conspiracy theories as well. Well, after the Wall Street Journal ran an editorial on the subject, um, it wasn't on the subject. It was titled The Election for Pennsylvania's High Court. The former president wrote a letter to the editor of the Wall Street Journal, and in that he said, well, actually, the election was rigged, which you, unfortunately, still haven't figured out. 
And he provided all these examples, relying on a group called Audit the Vote PA, which is an organization that has no experience in assessing elections, unsubstantiated claims. Uh, and it went on and on and on. And I don't know, I, I'm not that exercised about it because it's a letter to the editor. People can make up their own minds. Is Donald Trump not entitled to have a letter to the editor published? Yet? But here's the problem. In this letter, lengthy letter to the editor, Trump not just throws out a bunch of stuff that ain't true. He contradicts reporting by the Wall Street Journal's own correspondence. And so if there had been some context and accompanying piece, a news story in the news section, obviously editorial page, news section, church and state at, at most newspapers and especially the Wall Street Journal. But just to say, look, Trump wrote this letter, the journal published it, here are the 16 things we think are wrong. But instead it just stood. So, you know, you got lots of people online, for example, um, Jordan Fisher, he's a reporter for the CBS station here in D.C., called it a new low for the journal's opinion section. Amanda Carpenter, uh, who writes for The Bulwark, she's a um, former Republican staffer, never Trump conservative. Trump couldn't post this on Facebook, but the editors at the WSJ collectively decided to put it on their platform. Think about that. Uh, as if that magically absolves them from pushing the lies. And on and on and on. Uh, Nick Kristoff has his farewell column on the New York Times op-ed page today. He is resigning from the paper to run for governor of Oregon, where he is from, uh, or to seek the Democratic nomination to run for governor of Oregon. Uh, he's put out a video saying, I've never run for political office in my life. He's trying to turn that into an asset, as all outsiders do. Um, and look, he's running against some real heavyweights, uh, the Speaker of the Oregon House, the state treasurer. Uh, there's even a flap about whether he's eligible to run. Uh, quote, I probably should have, ch should have changed my registration. I wasn't focused on paperwork. I was focused on voting to remove President Trump and vote for Joe Biden, he told reporters in Portland. Uh, look, um, it's interesting to me. This guy won a Pulitzer Prize. He's written books. He is a very smart columnist and reporter. Um, but, it, you know, it's a little bit of a different skill set when you run for office. You've got to have a position on everything. And you've got to raise money. Uh, I could easily see him flaming out. But obviously this is something he, he feels he needs to do. He, he says in this column that, you know, when he got hired by Abe Rosenthal 35 years ago, he thought he would work for the Times forever, and he hasn't until now, that he'd be carried out of there, but it, somehow he feels called to get into politics. All right, let me get down to serious business here with number one. I got to tell you, watching this unfold early this morning, I think the media really got rolled by the White House. I mean, I, I, my jaw dropped, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, usually my jaw is in place. You know, I've seen a lot of stuff in politics. Nothing really surprises me. But given the, I'm just going to call it uh, a fiasco, because I think it has been a fiasco. Here we are, President Biden leaving today. By the time you've heard this, he'd probably already be on the Air Force One to go to Glasgow for the climate summit. And he put a lot of pressure on his Democratic Party to reach a deal in the endless, I mean, I mean endless negotiations over the reconciliation bill, the Democratic-only bill, the what was once the $3.5 trillion bill, before he goes off to meet with these world leaders. And it looked like it wasn't going to happen, okay? 
Uh, you know, for all the reasons that you know about. Joe Manchin objects to this. Joe Manchin objects to that. Kirsten Sinema objects to this. The progressives say, well, if that's out, I'm out. And all of that. But early this morning, the White House signaled it was going to put out a framework. I'm so tired of that word. Frameworks mean nothing. Unless you have a bill that actually has the text and the fine print, there is no deal. There is no agreement. But the White House put out this statement and then released this framework to the press saying uh, that we have now a compromise plan that we believe will have the support of all Democrats. And you watch them on, uh, on MSNBC. Oh, they've got, they've got a possible deal, a framework. Oh, this could be a breakthrough, you know. And anybody who's covered Capitol Hill for 10 minutes knows that, that everybody's not on board. They haven't seen the details. And so as the time went on and reporters had a chance to t- talk to a few members of Congress or their staffs, then they started to modify. Well, you know, I don't know. The progressives have a problem with this. Maybe it's not going to fly. Uh, and, and I look at the, the post by the big papers, and they all fell for it. Washington Post, President Biden plans to announce Thursday a revised framework for a social spending plan that he expects will gain the support of all Democrats, according to multiple people with knowledge of the situation, marking a potential breakthrough after months of no, uh, negotiations and stalled talks. Yeah, I, not so much. Um, there's no way. Now, could this ultimately form the basis of a compromise that does pass with 50 Democratic votes in the Senate? Yeah. And if that happens, I'll give Biden credit. But it certainly didn't happen today. The White House declined to comment. Biden went up to the Hill to talk to House Democrats um, before he heads off first to Rome, where he's going to meet with Pope Francis, and I guess later on to the uh, climate summit. Um, now, the specifics of what the president would announce were not immediately clear. That's a flashing neon light. They've got a deal. It's a framework, but we don't know what's in it. <laughs> Just... I mean, and, you know, the reporters all know this. They know better. They've been through this again and again and again and again and again. Remember when the big breakthrough was announced and actually the Senate passed the $1 trillion infrastructure bill? What was it, 19 Republican votes? That still hasn't passed because House progressives are holding it hostage. I feel to this day they should have found a way to take that win and then move on to this other stuff. Biden told congressional Democrats uh, he thought it could be between $1.75 trillion and $1.9 trillion. Uh, the latest reporting today is it'll be $1.85 trillion, you know, if it ever passes. So that's obviously what? Let's do the math here. Uh, less than half or about half of the original $3.5 trillion. By the way, since any senator, let's just say the initials were JM, has the ability to veto this thing, Shouldn't the Biden White House at the very beginning decide, figure out what Joe Manchin should ex- would accept and tailor it? Maybe ask for a little more so you can negotiate and tailor that rather than getting expectations jacked up sky high for a three and a half trillion dollar bill that Manchin was never going to go for, that Senate was never going to go for. Liberal House members have vowed not to sign off until they have a satisfactory agreement. Okay, here's the New York Times version. President Biden will go to the Capitol Thursday to announce progress on a, quote, framework agreement for a social safety net and climate change bill that would, blah, 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 would most likely bolster support for child care, early childhood education. Uh, details were still unclear on the precise 
shape of the package. So the New York Times was a little more restrained. The Washington Post, MSNBC were just like agog over this. New York Times update says it'll be $1.85 trillion. Um, but here's an accompanying time story that explains, uh, you know, why this is a fantasy at this point. As, as they hunt for revenue for their sprawling spending bill, Democrats are attempting to rewrite the United States tax code in a matter of days, proposing the kind of sweeping changes to how America taxes businesses and individuals that would normally normally take months or years to enact. Yeah, and they're going to do it in a few days, right? So basically, this piece says Biden has thrown out the trillions of dollars of tax increases that he campaigned on and that he had in the bill. Those were, as you'll recall, higher taxes on people making more than $400,000 a year, higher corporate taxes on companies uh, that would not be as high as before Trump, but higher than what Trump had cut it to, the capital gains tax. The frantic attempt to overhaul the complex U.S. tax code remained in a state of flux yesterday, with Manchin expressing reservations about a tax on billionaires. I think that thing's dead. Um, Earlier, Manchin shot down a plan to give the IRS more visibility. I love that word, visibility. It means they can see what you into your bank accounts. Okay, uh, Manchin also, uh, the, the family paid leave program, that appears to be dead because Manchin's opposing. You just go down the list. And of course, sorry, we have a little bit of noise here in the studio. I apologize for that. Um, and as you go down the list of all the things that Manchin is throwing out, then you're going to have uh, all these House progressives. AOC already says she won't vote for the infrastructure bill. I, you know, remember, the, the Dems can only lose by about four or five votes in the House or the whole thing just goes down. Um, the new policies include elements of the kind of wealth tax that Biden share, shied away from during the campaign. This is the taxing billionaires thing. I think it's there. The Times treats it as like, well, maybe, because it's only 700 billionaires. Okay. Here's Ron Klain, White House Chief of Staff, tweeting this morning. This package is twice as big in real dollars as the New Deal was. This can be the Congress that goes from 12 years of universal education to 14 years. That makes the largest investment in fighting climate change ever that cuts what families pay for child care in half. And I'm not disputing any of that. But that's the point. If they had sold something more along these lines, they could still claim, you know, 1.75, whatever it ends up being, trillion, is a vast, massive amount of money. Instead, they went so big and so bold and so Bernie (laughs) that this will be portrayed in the press, if this passes, as um, a setback, half a loaf, um, not getting what Biden wanted. That's just crazy. All right, number two. National Review says if you were to focus on Manchin's predetermined pronouncements, one would have to conclude that he was, not only was he as appalled by Congress's fiscal insanity, that's a quote, as the most rock-ribbed of America's budget hawks, but that he was the last man left in the Senate, the magazine says, who cared about regular order. And yet, says National Review, if one reads the reports of what Manchin has actually done, He's quite clearly neither of those things. I will not uh, re-rehearse here that when it comes down to brass tacks, Senator Joe Manchin is only pretending to be a fiscal conservative upon whose shoulders, whose weary shoulders, sits the full weight of our brutal fiscal reality. 
Uh, anyway, he says, look, Manchin really isn't, in the end, he's just going to go along with this party. Well, I don't agree with that at all because you had a $3.5 trillion bill and now it's going to be 1.7 or 1.85. Just that alone can be attributed to Joe Manchin. If paid federal leave has gone from 12 weeks to four weeks to possibly zero, that's Joe Manchin. If the climate change bill uh, has changing provisions that would help the coal industry or not hurt the coal industry, that is Joe Manchin. If the expansion of Medicare to include vision and dental for seniors has been greatly pared down or thrown out, that is Joe Manchin. Maybe you think it's terrible that all these things are coming out. Certainly you've got a lot of liberals who do. But to say that he's all talk and no action, I mean, I just don't agree with it. But a separate National Review piece makes this point. Biden promised again and again and again, as I mentioned, you make less than $40,000, not a penny in taxes, not going to raise your taxes. He didn't say what kind of taxes. But now, you know, because he's got to find some money somewhere to pay for this, uh, he wants to hike the tobacco tax. And National Review says, look, you know, um, it's a regressive tax. The vast majority of smokers have lower incomes. Um, and um, furthermore, um, you know, it's a, it's a kind of tax that lots of people who make under $400,000 will pay. Well, maybe it was implied that Biden was only talking about federal income taxes when he said that. But, you know, it's true. It's like if you raise the gas tax, you raise the tobacco tax. These are taxes that fall on actual working people. Who, and those people in the lower brackets can certainly less afford it than the Elon Musk of the world. Um, I don't know whether this will get traction as an argument against it, but on the other hand, look, the Republicans want to stop this, so they're going to say tax increases, tax increases. That also comes in handy for 2022. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Let's move on now to number three. Um, when the Centers for Disease Control have now added mood disorders to the list of conditions that put people at high risk for COVID-19. That, and and piece in the Washington Post says, well, that's obvious. If you suffer from depression or mood disorders, you're more likely to get COVID. I suppose some people would dispute that, but uh, the Washington Post contends this is long settled research. The practical effect here is it makes millions of people suddenly, immediately, eligible for booster shots based on their mental health diagnosis alone. Because up until now, it's been only if you had, if you were immunocompromised based on something physical or you were over 65. So with the CDC now saying that mental health conditions can be added to the list of people eligible for booster shots, look, legitimately, a lot of people who take medication for depression or otherwise are being treated for mental health problems, although you could see where this possibly could be abused. But so what? If they need a booster, and remember Biden's original plan was to have every adult be eligible for booster shots. So I think this is actually a good thing. Meanwhile, Deborah Burks, remember her? Well, she testified uh, on the Hill the other day. She was the coronavirus coordinator during the Trump administration. And guess what she's saying now? She's saying now that if the Trump administration had done a better job, if the task force had done a better job, uh, the White House could have prevented up to 40% of America's COVID-19 deaths, meaning more than 400,000 people died of COVID before Donald Trump left office. 
But she now says the former president didn't do as much as he could to prevent many of these deaths. She says she told us to the White House. She said that the president, she told the president there were specific things you could do to slow the virus's spread. Quote, I believe if we had fully implemented the mask mandates, the reduction in indoor dining, the getting friends and family to understand the risk of gathering, that uh, the casualties would have been far lower. And all I will say is she may well be right. Uh, I'm not sure how hard she fought. She obviously was on this tightrope, not wanting to get fired by the president she worked for, at the same time criticizing internally. But there's no question right now, no question, that um, Deborah Burks is trying to salvage her reputation. So she goes up and testifies and says, yeah, you know, I told that guy, and if he'd only listened to me, all these lives would have been saved. And I don't think that's good enough. Uh, I mean, look, if she's called to testify, she has to say what she thinks, she has to say what she told Trump. But it's, it sure seems like too little, too late from Deborah Burks. Moving on to number four. Uh, you know, we've been talking a lot, and the country's been talking a lot about Facebook and all of the, the tens of thousands of documents that have come out, all of which paint Mark Zuckerberg's company in a very bad light. And so now the question is, what's Congress going to do about it? Now that we know that uh, Facebook tweaked the all-powerful, all-purpose algorithms to uh, value five times greater these emotional emoji reactions like angry or sad, as opposed to just saying you like something. So you got stuff that made you angry or sad or happy or ha-ha. Um, so uh, Farhad Manju in the New York Times, very smart when it comes to tech issues, he rips these congressional proposals. And this guy knows what he's talking about. There's something called the Health Misinformation Act. It was proposed a couple months ago by the Democratic Senators Amy Klobuchar and Ben Ray Lujan. And uh, Farhad says... The nicest thing you can say about this that is that it means well. The Internet has been uh, something that accelerates myths, misunderstandings, and lies related to COVID-19. This Klobuchar bill would force companies like Facebook to crack down on false information during public health emergencies or lose immunity from lawsuits if they don't. There's only one problem, he writes. What is health misinformation? I know of no oracular source of truth about COVID-19. Yeah, who gets to decide, people? Uh, Manju goes on to say, scientific consensus has shifted dramatically during the pandemic. Even now, experts are divided over important issues, such as whether everybody should get a vaccine booster shot. Their bill just writes around this. Uh, they designate an all-knowing authority. Health misinformation is whatever the Secretary of Health and Human Services decides is health Misinformation. I'm sorry, what, he says. Uh, far hard writing that have the senators forgotten that just last year we had a president who ridiculed face masks and peddled ultraviolet light as a miracle cure for the virus. Why would we choose to empower such a president's cabinet appointee as the arbiter of what's true and false during a pandemic? That's right. Do you want to put it in the hands of a government, um, people appointed by a president, whoever happens to be president at the time? Um this guy says, look, I wouldn't put it past a science-averse future secretary from attempting to declare discussions about abortion or birth control, transgender health, or whatever else as, quote, misinformation. Manjo is a pretty liberal guy, so for him to say this, I think, is very intellectually honest. You really want to give the government that power to decide what's in misinformation? Remember uh, the whole Wuhan lab leak theory? You couldn't even talk about it on Facebook. 
it would be deleted. And now a lot of people think, well, it hasn't been proven, but there's much more circumstantial, circumstantial evidence for this. So uh, also, slight problem with the Klobuchar Luhan bill, it violates the First Amendment, or likely does, because there is something called freedom of speech in this country. And that's a real problem. And he goes on to say that there are problems with Republican proposed legislation here as well. And this is why, you know, it's easy to hold hearings and express outrage and we in the media write stories. But this is a really complicated problem. I mean, I don't know uh, why, whether uh, tech giants should continue to be immune or at least partially immune from lawsuits under this Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act. If you're a non-social uh, media company, if you're CNN, Fox News, New York Times, Washington Post, Huff Post, National Review, you name it, NBC, CBS, ABC, um, if you publish something and it's slanderous or libelous, you can be sued. And if, if a person can prove in a court of law, harder to do if you're a public figure, that you uh, lied or, were, or showed reckless disregard for the truth in the case of a public figure, you got to pay up. You can't do that with Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram because their whole rationale has always been, well, it's not us saying these things. We just provide the platform and people out there say these things. And we're doing our best to keep misinformation off the platform, but then you get back to the question that Manju raises. What exactly is the misinformation? I mean, I know it when I see it, to paraphrase Potter Stewart, but who gets to decide? That's ultimately what this is about. Who gets to decide? And finally, number five, I've wanted to get this through a couple of days because I'm an old newspaper guy and I really care about newspapers and it absolutely breaks my heart what's happening to newspapers. The Atlantic has a pretty deep dive on an outfit called Alden Capital. Alden Capital is a hedge fund that has been buying up lots and lots and lots of newspapers. In fact, Alden now owns 200 newspapers, including the Chicago Tribune, including the Baltimore Sun, including uh, New York's Daily News, and a lot of other, you know, major metropolitan papers whose names you would well know. Basically, this piece in The Atlantic, this is not the first criticism that this hedge fund has drawn, um, that it says basically they're buying up these papers, they're stripping them, they're milking the profits, and they're accelerating the uh, already troubling decline of American newspapers. By the way, uh, over the last 15 years, more than a quarter of America's newspapers have gone out of business. Now, look, there are a lot of um, problems with newspapers that you can't just blame on some hedge fund. In fact, the reason the hedge fund's buying it is because nobody else wants to buy it. I get that. I mean, unless you're a Jeff Bezos or um, a family like the Salzburgers, you know, it's not a great way. It used to be, newspapers used to be absolute cash cows, but then the internet came along and Craigslist and classifieds dried up and then they all, and there are a lot of self-inflicted wounds here. I could go on and on and on. Newspapers were too late to get into the online game. They were too late to charge for their content. Um, and they're struggling and they're still struggling. And even the best newspapers in the country have had a lot of layoffs. They are not the same size that they, but, but the problem is particularly worse. So Alden Capital from 2015 to 2017 uh, presided over staff reductions at, or the guy who runs Alden Capital, at 
for Alden's newspapers. In other words, more than a third of the staff was let go, according to analysis by the News Guild, which is a union, and you know, obviously they have their own axe to grind, but that's the numbers that they say. When it comes to the Chicago Tribune, was was one of America's great national and local newspapers. They gutted the place, according to this piece. They came in, they announced an aggressive round of buyouts, which means you get some money to go away, which is good for reporters who might lose their jobs anyway. The paper lost a Metro columnist who had championed the uh, occupants of a troubled public housing complex, the editor who maintained a homicide database that the police couldn't manipulate, the photographer who produced beautiful portraits of the state's undocumented immigrants, the investigative reporter who helped expose the governor's offshore oil companies. When it was over, a quarter of the Chicago Tribune newsroom was gone. Now, uh, whatever profits were generated by these olden papers, they didn't put that back into rebuilding the newsrooms. No. The money was used to finance the Hedge Fund's other ventures. Alden has acknowledged in legal findings diverting hundreds of millions of dollars from its newspapers into risky bets on commercial real estate, um, a bankrupt pharmacy chain, Greek debt bonds. Um, even compared to a chain like Gannett, which is known for aggressive cost cutting, Alden is, is doing something else entirely. It's not a newspaper company, says Anne-Marie Lipinski, former editor-in-chief of the Chicago Tribune. It's a hedge that went and bought up some titles that it milks for cash. The guy who runs Alden rarely visits his newspapers. Uh, He exhibited a casual contempt for journalists who worked there when he did, according to this piece. Um, He um, once suggested that Alden newspapers could get rid of all their full-time reporters and rely entirely on freelancers. Uh, this guy, Friedman, is denying that for a spokesman. Um, and so it's just, it breaks my heart because, you know, you know, newspapers have to compete in the marketplace. And if everybody wants news on their phones and everybody wants news on their iPads, I get it. But the real, at the local level, not so much at the national level, at the local level, the real accountability reporting, along with a lot of other stuff, you know, covering the home sports teams and writing about local artists and um, lifestyle pieces and all of that. But the real accountability for the city council, the county council, the state houses really were provided by newspapers that had reporters that know how to do this. And now there are fewer newspapers a lot fewer reporters at those newspapers, particularly as a hedge fund like Alden Capital buys up uh, many of these remaining papers. And, you know, what's lost is it's, it's a setback for democracy. I don't mean to sound all high-flown. A lot of these papers uh, are superficial and they never did such a great job. It's not like the golden days were that great. But when you talk about papers, even like the Daily News in New York or the Chicago Trip or the Baltimore Sun, there was a time when they were really solid journalistic enterprises that cared about the community, tended to have local owners, and they started being bought up by chains. Anyway, I've gone on and on about this because you can tell uh, I'm speaking from the heart here um, because they won't be replaced. Uh, It's nice that there are local websites now springing up, uh, but they're much smaller in scale. At least there's something. At least people are trying to save or salvage local reporting. And with that, I'm always grateful that you listen to the podcast. There's lots of places you can get it, including on your Amazon device or an Apple iTunes. And we're back here tomorrow with more BuzzFeed.
This is Jimmy Fallon inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.